Good morning. We're going to be looking again at Ephesians 1, the end of Ephesians 1, that's page 976 in your pew Bible. Uh, before we get there, let me just underscore again the announcement about community groups. So every Thursday through the summer, two of our groups are going to meet up and join here. We know people are in and out over the summer, so not everybody will be present. But it's an open invitation for anyone in the church that wants midweek fellowship to come. To come on, on Thursdays between 7 and 8.30 to meet with God's people, just have a time of sharing, getting to know each other better. Uh, this is really twofold. I want to have our members get to know people outside of their usual circle, but then especially as you saw all the new members that have joined and there's been lots of visitors, that you would have a context to come every week and, and meet people. So please make, make that a priority on the weeks that you're able to be here. Uh, on Friday morning, Rick Marshall and I uh, had the opportunity to go down to a prayer breakfast that was sponsored by the Philadelphia Gospel Movement. It was at the American Bible Society, and although I had visited when, when uh, Dr. Jew was on staff there, I forgot that the entrance was, was into the Wells Fargo Bank. So I went up to the corner, and, and Rick and I were trying to look how to get in, and we met, met an elderly man there, and I kind of flagged somebody down inside the museum, and they came, and they said, oh, you've got to go around the corner. So we walked with this elderly man, and as you would, you know, opened the door for him as we went in, and, you know, just pleasant, you know, made pleasantries about where is where's the door to this place. Um, it wasn't until later that I realized that this elderly man I was walking in with was none other than the Reverend Dr. Wilson Good, who was actually being held in honor at this breakfast, was given an award. Uh, for, for those of you who are not familiar with Wilson Good, he was our mayor from 84 to 92. So he's the first mayor that I remembered. I was 14 years old when, when he was elected. Uh, and he's done wonderful things for our city. But I totally missed it because he changed a lot since I saw those pictures in the 80s. <laughs> and he was wearing a mask. So. But it did make me think as we look at our passage today, how often do we miss Jesus? Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, is lifted up and exalted infinitely beyond every other human being who ever lived. He's exalted in space. He's exalted in his sovereignty. He's exalted in his glory and through all time. But do you see him? And what difference does his, what I'll say, call preeminence in a moment, what difference does his preeminence make in your life? If you're investigating the Christian faith, we're really glad that you have come out this morning. And I want to ask you, what, what do you think of when you see Jesus? Is he an interesting historical figure to you? Or, you know, a haloed image from medieval art? Um, do you see him as just a moral teacher? What you're going to see in this passage is that he is depicted in the New Testament as the sovereign king who is ruling over everything for the good of his people. He rules for the sake of his subjects. Well, please join me in reading Ephesians 1. We're going to read 15 through the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. And we're going to look at, at three main points. Uh, so we did, we're doing this passage two weeks in a row. So last week I looked at the first half. This week we're going to be looking at really 20 through the end. Um, but we're going to look at three main points. Number one, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Number two, that he is given to the church. And number three, that the church is called to be his fullness in the world. So in verse 19, you see, it, it refers to the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. God has been doing this throughout all history. Think of the immeasurable greatness of his power in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, the ten plagues that he brought on, on Egypt. Um, or Elijah on Mount Carmel when he was kind of dueling with the prophets of Baal. And, and the fire came down to consume his sacrifice. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, being delivered from that, even though the men that threw, threw them in were killed. Um, God has been using the immeasurable greatness of his power throughout all redemptive history. And this is, this is important that it's immeasurable. Think about it like this. How many of you have taken physics classes recently? I know there's some high school students that are looking forward to your finals this week. I know there's some, some college students that are back that have been taking physics. If you've taken physics, you know that there's all kinds of forces in this world that we have figured out how to measure. You can't measure this, the greatness of God's power. But it goes further than that because scripture says his power is most clearly seen and God himself is most clearly seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So our passage is describing Jesus as preeminent. It's a 25 cent word. I put it up a slide here for you from Merriam-Webster. It means having paramount rank, dignity, or importance. Paramount rank, dignity, or importance. Keep that in your mind because we're going to be using this word as we go through uh, this sermon today. What he's saying, Paul is using language to make clear that Jesus is infinitely above all of his rivals. It's what we just sang a little bit ago. Jesus has no rivals. He has no equals. Now and forever, he is God. So I want to look at four aspects of this that we see in our passage. Number one, he is preeminent in space. What do I mean by that? It says, first of all, that he is seated in the heavens. He's in the heavens. He's in the heavens. What does that mean? The heavens is God's sphere. It's where God rules. 
as we saw a number of weeks ago, the ultimate goal where all of human history is heading towards is bringing heaven and earth together, bringing God's sphere and our sphere together. But right now, that's where God rules over the cosmos. And that's where Jesus is. So he's in heaven. He's in heaven at the Father's right hand. So this is, this is the place of honor. The greatest place of honor is to be at the right hand of someone in Scripture. And he's seated at the Father's right hand. So he's in heaven, he's at the right hand, and, and he's seated. And this is an important description. It is a picture of a victorious king. A king in repose who has conquered all of his enemies. And so he is seated and it echoes this very famous messianic psalm from, from psalm, psalm 110, which is actually, this is the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Ephesians is saying that's what's going on right now. That's what's happened. The Lord is now seated and everything it says in verse 22 is under his feet. So what that's pointing to is that Jesus is preeminent in his sovereignty. It's describing Jesus as having supreme power. And so Paul is piling up these terms, if you look, that he's saying he's far above in verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion saying, think about every kind of, of power that there is. List them all out. He is far above them. I mentioned last week, as we go through Ephesians, you're going to see that power is a really important theme in Ephesians. And what does power mean? Who has it? What does it look like? How is it expressed? This is really important because the church in Ephesus was contending with principalities and powers. First of all, you had the Roman magistrates. Rome was seen as all-powerful. Rome was subjugating the entire known world. This was a force that could not be shaken from a human re uh, reckoning. He's saying Jesus is far above that. It was also a place where, where pagan worship was really significant. I mentioned last week that in the book of Acts, it talks about the, the Christians in Ephesus, when they, when they were converted, brought together all their magic books and burned them. It was 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books. Religion and magic were significant. And, and Paul is saying, no, Jesus is infinitely greater than all the pagan religious forces that are at work. So he's preeminent in space, in his sovereignty. He's preeminent in glory. So our passage describes him as having the name that is above every name that is named. His name is exalted. I just want to point you here to, to Philippians 2, where Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do, do you hear what it's saying? 
He is exalted. His name is above every name. And there is a day coming when everyone, past, present, and future, is going to acknowledge that. And not only acknowledge it, but bow. And give him the worship that is his due, the honor that is his due. Um, This is really important for how we navigate the world right now. Um, It means that that we can have a greater peace in the midst of mounting cultural hostility against us. And this is really important. It is not on Christians to make everyone exalt Jesus. It is on us to be faithful ambassadors and to do it ourselves. Resting in what that Philippians passage just said, that the day is coming when everyone's going to do it. Christian, you can rest assured with that. That day is coming, everyone is going to worship and bow. This is where I'm getting concerned. There is a lot of anger among American Christians because of your loss of cultural capital. There's a lot of anger. And you are losing What it says in James, we looked at many months ago, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger will not move the kingdom of Jesus Christ forward. It might actually work to thwart it. You need to pay attention to that. And what I want to challenge you with is the anger that we feel reveals a heart that wants to win in this world, in this life rather than one that trusts the promises of this passage and believes in the preeminence of Christ and that every knee is one day going to bow. Because our passage, the Philippians passage we read and the Ephesians passage make clear that the end is guaranteed. This is where everything's headed. You can rest assured in that. Um, Jesus is also preeminent in time. And so it says his exaltation is both in this age and in the one to come. It's saying that that his glory, his sovereignty, is one of new creation, the age to come, that he's been raised from the dead. It said earlier that this power that is at work in us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Um, It's the power of the new heavens and new earth that's coming that he has already entered into as the firstborn from the dead, it says in Colossians 1, and is inviting us to be, as its citizens, to begin living out in this world. We'll get get to that more in a moment. Um, But I want you to put all of these together, his preeminence, spatially, sovereignty, glory, and and, uh, temporally here, The clearest picture we have of Jesus is actually a passage that that I preached on last summer from Revelation 1. And and I would urge you to go back and look at that passage again. It's it's when John sees him. um, John, the disciple, is on the island of Patmos and, and has a vision of the risen and exalted Jesus. And if you're not familiar, you should know this about John. He's referred to in his gospel as the beloved disciple who was so close with Jesus that at the Last Supper, he actually leaned back, reclined against him. When he sees the exalted Jesus and his glory, he falls on his face like a dead man. He's completely undone. Jesus has to reach out and say, it's okay, it's me, get up. 
That is the Jesus that, that is described in our passage, who is risen and exalted. Um, brothers and sisters, if we would meditate on who he is in his glory, your anger will go away. Because he's got it. All the things that you're worked up about, he's got it. He's in control. Um, I like how Abraham Kuyper, he was a 19th century Dutch theologian and statesman. This is a very famous statement. Some of you have probably heard it. He said this at the, his inaugural address for the dedication of the Free University of Amsterdam in 1880. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That it is all things he is ruling over and in our existence. We'll tease that out a little bit at the end here. Um, now this is really important because we just sang in the hymn, in the midst of trial and tribulation and tumult of her war. It is hard for us in the midst of everything we see going on and in our own lives to hold on to these truths. I've shared with a couple of you this morning, pray for me, because it's hard in the midst of everything going on to, for me to hold on to these truths too. But this is how Hebrews puts it. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And it goes on to talk about Jesus being lifted up and exalted. But it's, what is it saying? You, you have to receive this by faith. You've got to see that this is true. Jesus is risen and exalted. He's ruling over all things. His kingdom is coming in its fullness and in power. Um, hold on. Believe his promises. He calls us to have an active role in bringing his rule to fruition. Again, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I just want to ask, where are you in danger of letting something else be preeminent? It could be cultural issues, political issues, you know, some of, the, some of what can be behind our anger. But what else can it look like for you to have something preeminent in your life besides Jesus? Whatever you turn to, to be preeminent, is actually going to sap life away from you instead of blessing uh, and, and what can this look like? I, I think it happens personally, and it can happen corporately. Uh, many of us were really rocked by the investigative report that came out against the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not blasting our Baptist brethren. Uh, there could be a similar expose, I'm sure, of, of Presbyterian churches. But it's just one example of what happens, in this case, where an institution let something other than the preeminence of Christ be preeminent. So it looks like protecting the power and reputation of either individuals or institutions by sacrificing the vulnerable and needy and utterly violating the one who is sovereign and what he commands for his people and what's most dear to his heart. Uh, a couple of weeks ago at Presbytery, one of our pastors shared, he had been on sabbatical and he wanted to, Rick and the uh, Leadership Vitality team asked him to share his experience of sabbatical and talked about the renewal that God had brought about in his life during that time. 
And one of the books he read was Paul Tripp's Dangerous Calling. And so uh, I've had the book for a number of years, so I pulled it back off to look at again. I was struck that three out of the five pastors mentioned that, that kind of promote the book on the back. Three out of, the, out of five of them have either renounced the faith, have been removed from ministry, have been caught in some kind of national scandal since that book was published in 2015. So I want to ask you, what is preeminent in your life? We fall away because something else takes preeminence. So Jesus is preeminent over all things. He is, he is preeminent, but given to the church. Think about this. This all-powerful sovereign we've been talking about is God's gift to his people. How did he get to his preeminence in the first place? I want to go back to Philippians 2 because it holds these things together. We read the, we, we read the latter part about his name being exalted. Listen to the first part. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and it goes on with what we, what we looked at earlier. You know, one of those little Bible study things they say is when you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's Therefore, why was he highly exalted? Because he laid down his life. Because he set his glory aside. Because he humbled himself infinitely to come down, to take on flesh. And not take on flesh as an exalted ruler in this world, but to take on flesh as one who would be a servant and ultimately go to the cross for us. In that, he is highly exalted. Again, in Jesus, we have the clearest picture of God, and we see that he laid down his life for us. Um, so, let me ask you, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, lots of people have a view that all religions are the same. You know, if you could kind of distill them, they would all be the same. And I suspect what, what people mean when they say that is ethics would be the same. There'd be a similar kind of ethic. Treat people the way you want to be treated, that kind of thing. Um, but this is what you need to realize if you're investing in the Christian faith. It is utterly different than any other system of religion because only in Christianity does God himself come down, as we sang about. Only in Christianity does God enter in for our sake. Only in Christianity does God lay down his life for those who have rebelled against him. He moves towards us to reconcile. It's not us trying to make our way and, and claw our way somehow back to him. He took the initiative. We broke the relationship. He took the initiative to reconcile it. Um, I like what it says in, in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father gave what was most precious for us. Um, and so Jesus, the preeminent one, is given to the church. 
How is he given to the church? Rick talked a moment ago about how this is Pentecost Sunday, significant Sunday uh, in the church calendar. When we remember the outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus at the Last Supper said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's exalted above all things, but he draws near to his people by his spirit. His spirit has been poured out on us so that we're not abandoned. And many people say, you know, I wish, and I can resonate with this, right? I wish I had seen some of those things. You know, I wish I had seen those plays coming down on Egypt. Or I wish I could have been here when Jesus was walking around in the flesh and touching people. Um, What this means What Pentecost means, what our passage today is teaching us, is that we're actually living in the middle of the most dramatic thing that God has done in history. That his spirit has been poured out on his people, bringing resurrection life to us and transforming us and and with power to transform the world that we live in. But it looks different than we expected. Just like, deep, just like Jesus looked different than everyone expected. Why did the religious leaders reject him? Because he looked different. He was weak. He died on a cross. Only failed messiahs were supposed to die on crosses. And it looks different for us. Because it isn't this big, glorious thing. It is with Deeds of love and mercy that the kingdoms goes forward. It's him eradicating sin in our lives, enabling us to be people who love others, who extend his kingdom in this world, one person at a time. Now, what does this mean? If you hold these things together, he's sovereign over all, and he's been given to the church. Um, and, And think of that Kuiper quote in the background. It means every situation that you enter into is under the rule of Jesus even if you don't yet see it. And he's been given as head to the church. That Greek word could also mean for the church in verse 22. Um, It means you are never alone in any of the challenges that you face. You're not alone in it, and you are empowered in it with resurrection life to bring the kingdom of God to every situation that you touch. That's what this passage is telling us. Wherever he places you, he is with you in it. Um, He's given to us so that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. It's the power of his resurrection, the passage says. It's the power of new creation. In Luke 4, he puts it, Luke 4 is is Jesus' mission statement. When he's in the synagogue, he quotes from Isaiah 61. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The the immeasurable greatness of his power is overturning the effects of the curse. It is freeing his people and freeing ultimately this world, the whole cosmos eventually, from the power of the curse. That's why resurrection power has been poured out in the spirit It means that he is at work healing the wounds. He cares about the things that happen to you, and he promises to bring healing. He cares about the ways that you're still doing things that he doesn't want you to do. And he offers his power to live differently and to be transformed. Um, Where in your life do you need freedom from the curse right now? 
What are the dead places in your life that need resurrection? Because the power has been given. Because Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Um, And maybe it's not in your life. Maybe it's in someone's life that you love. I know I've asked this before. I don't think I've done it recently. Who in your life do you think is outside of his reach? Will you commit to pray for that person? He is delighted to to show us his power in these kind of situations that we think are hopeless. Um, Who do you believe is too far gone? Finally, Jesus is preeminent. He's been given to the church so that we will be his fullness in the world. And this is our calling. Uh, Specifically in this passage, Jesus is given as the head, right? It tells us. um, What does a head do? It it controls the rest of the body. It leads the body. Um, And he's, he's inviting us to be a part of extending his kingdom. So what does it mean that we are his fullness? It means that we are his physical manifestation, because that's kind of an odd phrasing, right? It's the fullness of him who fills all in all. It says in verse 23. So how can we be fullness if he's the one filling all in all? It means that he has poured out his spirit. He fills us so that we are his physical manifestation in this world uh, as the church. We are his physical manifestation. And in this world, we tend to look at the outside of things. Right? We tend to look at the outside of a container. But if you're really thirsty, what matters is what is inside the container. And he's the one that's inside you. So you have everything you need. Um, and this is really freeing because you don't need to muster up the blessing for the world. You really just need to stay connected to him. Because his promise was, I'm the living water. And if you abide in me, Living water will flow from you to the world. That is the calling, that we would be abiding in him, seeking him, talking to him, spending time in his word, and that as you do that, living water will flow from you as he is at work in you. Um, Let me just um, end with a couple more thoughts. The gospel is bigger than I think often we realize. Um, What was the the calling of humanity in Genesis 1 and and echoed in Psalm 8? That we would have dominion, that we would rule over creation. And we've really failed at that. There's only one person who did it right. Jesus, who's referred to as the last Adam. But now, he, by his spirit, fills us, empowers us to be a part of of bringing his kingdom to this world, to having dominion in the ways that are honoring to him and blessing of creation. And this is really important, again, if you bring Kuiper's quote to to bear um, and and see see Jesus' preeminence through this lens of him ruling over all things for the church, that we are his fullness. Um, It means that there is no, no separation between sacred and secular. You know, like sacred is, hey, I'm a preacher. That's a, real, that's, a, that's a calling that is sacred. But secular, you know, that's finance. All you people out there, you business people. Um, it tears those, those distinctions down. 
because Jesus rules over all things and calls you as his ambassador, wherever you're going to find yourself tomorrow morning, extending his kingdom. Being his people in the world that are spreading love and mercy and transformation where you go. Uh, I wanted to say more about the, the uh, Philly gospel movement. Let, let me just say this. It was an encouraging time. It's bringing together you know, a broad swath of, of pastors and leaders that in the, in the civic realm, in business, um, in the church, from different denominations, from all different ethnicities, with a calling to transform the city. And God's timing on this was interesting because I did, um, I, you may recall last week, I started off my sermon, one of the things I mentioned was the homicide rate in Philly. I was, I was overwhelmed as I've tracked that over the last week, how people are daily being killed. And so two things hit me about these pastors. Number one, how desperate the situation is. It is desperate. Number two, the incredible hope they have believing this passage that Jesus is reigning, that he's bringing his kingdom to bear, and that it can transform the city that they live in. I just want you to think about it like this. How are you spending your life? Because there is nothing greater to live for than this king who is ruling in power, is going to return in power, and to spend your life in this world doing everything you can to help that kingdom go forward. If you are feeling dissatisfied right now, if you are feeling discontent in your life, it's because something else is preeminent. If you don't know what it is, ask him. He'd be delighted to show you. If you will surrender those things and turn to him, your life will overflow and his kingdom will go forward from you to the world we live in. Let's pray. Lord, would you make these things true of us? Would you help us to push back against the hopelessness that we can get watching the news or looking at our families or seeing our neighborhoods? Would you help us to believe your promises, to cry out to you in faith, and to move your kingdom forward for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.